Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. Thank you for your word, that you're a God who is not silent, but speaks to us. Give us ears to hear what you have to say. I pray for your glory. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last week, as you know, uh, our bishop came into town, Bishop Ken, and that meant that we had lots of meals, lots of eating together. Um, it started Friday night when I met with him and had dinner. That was Thai food Friday night. And then uh, continued on Saturday. Saturday we had a meeting with the clergy and the vestry, and so we had sandwiches on on Saturday. And then, of course, Saturday night was the, the parish uh, reception, and that was barbecue and all the sides. And it, it continued on until Sunday when he, when he left. After the service on Sunday, it was Italian food with the bishop. So there was a lot of eating and fellowshipping with Bishop Ken last weekend. And that's because eating a meal together, we're not just fulfilling a, a biological need. We're saying that we belong to each other. It's a way of fellowshipping. And, and it's a way of strengthening our bonds together. And that's what we were doing as we were eating together. And that's true today, and it's even more true uh, for the ancient world, for the world that Jesus lived in, in New Testament times. Eating a meal together, as one historian put it, he said it was, it's signifying the most intimate of relationships when you eat a meal together in the ancient world. That's why the Pharisees were so shocked. When Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, who is claiming to speak for God. Uh, Jesus, who uh, has just said in the, in the previous uh, passage from Matthew 9, it's not in our bulletin, but Jesus has just pronounced the forgiveness of sins upon somebody. Only God can forgive sins. So here's Jesus claiming to speak for God, and he's fellowshipping with people who are far from God. And this is difficult for the Pharisees to make sense of. He called, we see in Matthew 9, he called Matthew a tax collector to follow him. It says that Matthew rose and followed him. And so that was scandalous. That Jesus is saying to a tax collector, I want you to be part of what I'm doing. And then it says that he went into this house. And in, in Luke's account of this, uh, Luke gives a parallel account of this. It's clear that he's in the house of Matthew. He's in the house of Levi, the tax collector. And uh, it says that as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, now, when you come across behold in the Bible, that's an exclamation point. That's, take notice, something interesting is about to happen. And this here, you would put a, maybe a shock face emoji next to this one. Can you believe this? <laughs> Look at this. Jesus was reclining with many tax collectors and sinners. They came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And, and I learned something this week in researching this, that it wasn't just a matter of who you ate with, but it was a matter of how you ate with them. 
that signified something. So to recline, so they ate in those days, on, and they, re, they ate reclining on couches and they ate from these low tables. The important people did that. But to recline with somebody was to say, hey, you're important to me. To recline with the guest of honor, Jesus was the guest of honor, signified that you are an important person and that this guest of honor values you. Uh, if you weren't important, you go sit on the floor somewhere. So it's not just a matter of him eating with them, but he's bringing them really close to him, reclining with them, saying these folks are important to me. And so we can imagine these Pharisees who are looking at this and maybe just kind of imagine the emotions for a minute. They're, they're perplexed. They're asking why. They're probably scrowling. They're probably scratching their head. They're, we see later in the Gospels when they grumble and they murmur and they complain about Jesus. They're whispering their disapproval about what he's doing. The Pharisees, the very name Pharisee, means separated. So their strategy for being faithful to God was to separate from people who were far from God. That was their strategy. They were tired of seeing their nation corrupted by people who didn't care about God or follow the Bible. They were tired of seeing their religion being corrupted. They were, we would say today, they were fighting secularism in their context. They were against this corruption. They were against this secularism. They did not want to be corrupted by sinners. They did not want their family corrupted by sinners. They wanted to separate from people who were far from God, like tax collectors and prostitutes, to just make it clear that we do not approve of your lifestyle. And maybe to shame them, maybe they would turn from the direction they were going. But the strategy was let's separate. And I have to confess, I mean, when we come across Pharisees uh, in the New Testament, we know we're supposed to say these are the bad guys. But I have to confess a little sympathy for the Pharisees here. I, I mean, think about it. Think about who these tax collectors were. These were Jews who were working with the Roman government, who were oppressing Jews. They were collaborating with oppressors. This would be like if, Ru if Russia, God forbid, was able to take some control over this country, like they're doing and trying to do in Ukraine. Like if Russia had a portion of our country, and you lived in that portion of the country that was under Russian control, and you got on the highway, and you saw ahead, there's a toll booth, and that was a tax booth. And to get to where you want to go, you have to pay the oppressor who's taking away your freedom. And you see in the tax booth your neighbor, Bill. And you've been thinking, what's up with Bill lately? He's got a new car. He's got a new addition on his house. You've been talking to your wife about Bill. Where is he getting this money all of a sudden? And now you know He's working for the oppressors. And everybody knows that these tax collectors, they take more than they should. They take more than the government demands. Would you feel friendly towards Bill? Would you say, hey, I'd love to have dinner with you. 
come over. I think that would be hard. I don't think I would think friendly thoughts towards Bill. I don't think I'd want to develop a relationship with him. But Jesus did. That's the radical thing about Jesus. So the Pharisees say to his disciples, why is he doing this? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and prostitutes and people are far from God? And in answering that question, Jesus tells us his strategy. Their strategy is let's separate. He's got a different strategy. Here's what Jesus says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So, Jesus agrees with the Pharisees that the tax collectors, people like the tax collectors, are sick. They're spiritually sick. They're greedy. They're taking advantage of people. They're taking advantage of oppressed people. So, he agrees with the Pharisees. They are spiritually sick. But that means they need a physician. They need somebody to heal them. You know, a person who has no pain person who eats their five fruits and vegetables, servings of vegetables every day, and runs a half a marathon every month, they're not going to get on the phone and say, Doc, I need an appointment right away. They're feeling good about themselves. They're feeling healthy. Jesus says, I'm here to minister to those who know they need help, who are in a place to acknowledge that. And then, as we see the Gospels unfold, what will he do with the Pharisees? He'll point out that they are also in need of mercy. They are also sinners. That they might look good on the outside, look righteous on the outside, but there's issues with their heart that need to be dealt with. So he'll get to the Pharisees and the scribes later. But here he's explaining the strategy to the Pharisees. It's the sick who need a doctor. It's the sick who are most likely to recognize their need for a physician. And then he quotes Hosea, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Hosea is saying, and we read that passage today, Caleb read that passage today, that God wants a people. He wants his people to be those who are not just content to go through the religious motions, to perform the religious rites and rituals, to give them a, give them a sacrifice. He wants a people who love him, whose hearts are right before him, who steadfastly love him, who worship him out of a place of love, and then who are merciful to others because they've experienced the mercy of God. Go and learn what this means, Jesus says to them, <laughs> which must have been galling because these are people who are learning all the time. They're experts in the Old Testament. <laughs> Read your Bible. Go back, he says. Go back. You messed a lesson here in Hosea. Look at your notes again. Look at what Hosea says. Look at what God was speaking to the people of Israel then. He is a merciful God. And he wants you to be merciful. Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is undeserved kindness. Undeserved kindness. It's not getting what we deserve. It's undeserved kindness. So, so God in Christ wants to heal sinners with his mercy. Jesus wants to heal sinners. He's the great physician who brings people the mercy of God. And he wants to heal them with that mercy. So he gives his mission statement at the end of verse 13. 
For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's my mission. That's why I'm here. That's why I've been sent. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, we could say. Although he's going to invite them too. But sinners. So the strategy of the Pharisee is separation from sinners. The strategy of Jesus is invitation to sinners. Invitation to fellowship with him. To know the mercy of God. The Pharisees want to cancel sinners. Jesus calls sinners. The Pharisees shun sinners. Jesus wants to save sinners. You see? Jesus, the the, the Pharisees would say to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, you go sit somewhere else. And Jesus says, hey, there's room here at this table for you. Like the lunchroom scene in junior high. Where you're afraid that there's no one who will give you a place to sit. Remember those days? Jesus always has room. You come and sit here with me. I want to get to know you. And, and the reason that Jesus fellowshiped with sinners was not to affirm them in their sin, but to call them to repentance. Luke 5.32, the parallel scene of this. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He wants to change them. By the way, anyone here thankful that there's room at the table for sinners at Jesus' table? Anyone here thankful that he had mercy on you? Anyone here like me who can look back in seasons of my life of rebellion and distance from God? And and like the psalmist said, Psalm 25, where David says, Lord, do not remember the sins of my youth or my rebellious way, but according to your loving kindness, according to your mercy, remember. I'm thankful that the Lord did that for me and is still doing that for me and is still saying, there's a place for you. But but the purpose here is Jesus wants to change them with the mercy of God and call them to repentance. It's not to affirm them in their sin and say, hey, you don't need it. You keep on collecting those taxes and cheating on people. No. He's calling them to a new life. He's calling them into the kingdom. He's calling them to repentance, which means to turn around, to change directions, to change the course, to change your mind. He wants to heal them with the mercy of God, but that in healing involves repentance. And genuine repentance does involve a change, a change of life. It involves feelings, yes, but it involves more than feelings. It involves a change of mind, a change of life. And we see this happening in Jesus' ministry, don't we? He says, this is my strategy. And then we see this strategy bearing fruit in the ministry of Jesus. Think about Zacchaeus. Exhibit A for this strategy bearing fruit. Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Jesus says, I want to eat with you. I want to have fellowship with you. I'm going to your house today. That interesting Jesus just invites himself over. <laughs> but, but here's a man who was wealthy 
and again, greedy and probably corrupt. And Jesus is honoring him by coming into his house. And then Zacchaeus, in the presence of Jesus, and publicly says, Behold, half of my goods I give to the poor. He's changed from greed to generosity. Half of it. And then if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times. Here's a man's heart has been changed. Here's a man's heart that has changed. John Jewell, one of our great Anglican theologians, in his homily on repentance, I like what he says about Zacchaeus. He uses Zacchaeus as an example of what true repentance looks like. And he says, this is old language, he says, he was no more the man that he was before, but was clean changed and altered. Clean changed and altered. A different man, not who he was before. That's repentance. And that's what Jesus is after. And after Zacchaeus says, uh, after Zacchaeus makes this confession and repents and, and says, I'm changing my way of life, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And then he gives his mission statement again. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's what Jesus is about. It's invitation versus separation. So Jesus' way raises some questions for us today, doesn't it? In terms of how we might apply this, it's challenging. There are some questions that I don't have easy answers to. There are some issues here that call for wisdom and discernment. Like, what about our children? What about our children who are being bombarded with messages that if they believe these messages, it's going to take them far from God, from the truth of God. And they're not grounded yet in the Word of God. Our our young children are not yet grounded enough in the Word of God to discern truth from lies. So we're called as parents to protect our children. So this calls for some discernment, some wisdom. But what about new Christians who've come out of addictions or patterns of behavior that are, are contrary to God's Word and what's best for them and best for other people? Probably not wise for them to hang out with folks who are still practicing those kinds of things. So it may take time for them to get spiritually strong enough so that they're able to fellowship with people who are doing the things they used to do, that they were addicted to. Strong enough to be involved in fellowship with the purpose of of pointing them to the great physician. So there's some discernment, isn't it? There's discernment because Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, We're not to partner with those who practice works of darkness. We're not to partner with them. Do not partner with them, he says. Take no part in their unfruitful works of darkness. We're not to engage in those activities. But we're not to separate. We're not to put up a wall. We're not to stiff arm. That's the challenge. So again, there's... Questions this raises about how to apply this, and I think there, we could have conversations around, and I haven't got it all figured out, and we could talk together about this, how to apply it. But one thing I do know is that Jesus is challenging us. He's challenging me. Don't cut yourself off from the spiritually sick. Because you know the great physician. Because he's healed you. And they need what you Needed 
and what you still need. Some of you might know the story of Rosario Butterfield. I think I've told this story before, but it's worth telling again. Rosario Butterfield in the 1990s was a college professor, tenured professor of, I think, women's studies. She was a feminist. She was an atheist. She was a lesbian. She spoke at pride parades. She was very prominent in that community. And an outspoken Marxist and against Christianity. Very much against conservative Christianity. And she wrote an article in the local newspaper critiquing back then, you remember Promise Keepers? She, was, she critiqued Promise Keepers and she said, you know, these people are just patriarchal and they want to take us back. And so she wrote this article in the newspaper and then a local pastor read that article, a pastor named Ken, and he's one of these conservative Christians. He's a Presbyterian Christian in the same town that she's in. And he said, why don't you come over to my house and let's have dinner. I want to get to know you. And that started a two-year friendship. He invited her in, him and his wife. I think her name was Floyd. Unique name, Floyd. And they, for two years, they ate with her. They invited her in and then she would go, they would go to her house and visit with her friends. During that time, the spirit is beginning to convict her because over time he starts talking to her about the Bible. And the spirit's beginning to convict her about her thinking and her lifestyle. And she went through a season there in a two-year period, listen to this, where she read the Bible five hours a day, seeking God's truth. And it came down to, you know, Am I going to believe this or not? And the Holy Spirit did a powerful work in her heart where she came to faith in Jesus Christ. But she said um, it was Ken and Floyd's uh, hospitality that opened her mind and heart to the message of the Bible. Let me just quote a couple of things she said about their attitude, their, their way of relating to her. This was somebody who was far from God and hostile, hostile to the Bible. Here's one thing she said. Ken made it possible for me to change without feeling shame. He made me feel welcomed, not a scapegoat for Christian, uh, Christian fear. He didn't put me in the category of these are the people who we ought to be afraid of. These are the people who we can categorize as this is what's wrong. Another thing she said, he, he made clear that he accepted me, but that he didn't approve of my lifestyle. So they got to the place of trust where they could talk about what was going on in her life, and he made that distinction. That's a hard distinction today. Some people don't believe that's even possible. If you love me, then you have to accept my lifestyle. Well, any parent knows that that's probably not true, because our children do things all the time that we don't approve of, but we still love them. But see, that takes relationship. So she was saved by the mercy of God in Christ, and she repented, and now she's a pastor's wife and a mother and one of the most articulate, I think, writers on sex and gender issues today from a biblical perspective that we have. And now she invites others to her table. See, it continues. The mercy of God. So... 
brothers and sisters, friends, what would it look like for us to do this in our church, in our families, as individuals? What would it look like for us to follow Christ in this way? Uh, For those who are far from God, what does it mean to say, I want to get to know you better? Some people in this church are already doing this kind of ministry, and it's encouraging and challenging to me. But I want to encourage all of us this morning to pray for the grace of God to follow Jesus in this way. Not separation. Invitation. I want to get to know you. I want you, I want you to I want to hear your story. I want to point you to somebody who can help Jesus. Let's pray. Help us, God, to follow you in this way, Lord Christ. It is a challenge. It is difficult. But it is also so rewarding when we see people who were lost and now are found. Who were sick, but now are whole. Who were far, but have been brought near through the cross. And so thank you for this work you've given us to do. Give us wisdom. Give us grace to do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.